studies show that when people make decisions based on numbers, they are likely to make different decisions based on how the numbers are formatted. If the number is presented to them as 10%, they'll probably make a different decision, likely to make a different decision than if the number was presented to them as one-tenth. Which one of these formats do we use to make the right decisions? Let's see. Welcome to Committing High Reason, a podcast where we dissect important topics such as good versus evil, religion versus atheism, Judaism versus Zionism, and our pet peeve, political propaganda. Committing High Reason will give you tools to strengthen your intellectual independence, enhance your critical thinking, and hopefully acquire some very new perspectives. Now, here's your host, Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro. We all look at ourselves as rational people able to make everyday decisions in a rational, logical fashion. We walk into a restaurant and we look at a menu. And we say to ourselves, this entree is too much money. That entree, on the other hand, is more affordable. I'm going to order that. Or we log into a website, and it gives us one of these temporary passwords. It says this password will expire in five minutes. So we know that we don't have to rush to put in the password, because five minutes is a reasonable amount of time for us to enter the password before it expires. If we're trained professionals then we're capable of making more skilled, more responsible decisions with greater consequences. If you're a forensic psychologist or psychiatrist, you want to know whether to release Mr. Jones from the psychiatric ward. He's a violent criminal. And you have the data in front of you. What are the odds of Mr. Jones committing violence after he comes out? This was your training. You're a professional. You're able to make the decision. But it turns out, studies show, and our experience shows, that we're not nearly as rational as we thought. If you walk into a restaurant and you look at a menu, the odds are that you're going to spend 8% more on your food if the prices on the menu do not have dollar signs on them. If it says $20.99, if it's just 20.99, you will spend 8% more than if it says 20.99 with a dollar sign on the left. Now, you know that $20.99 means the same thing whether it has a dollar sign or not. But the fact of the matter is, the odds are you're going to spend more if it doesn't have that dollar sign. And when you get that temporary password, For that website, it's not going to tell you that you have five minutes to put it in. Probably, it's going to tell you you have 300 seconds to enter this password. Because they know, if they tell you you have 300 seconds, you'll probably put in that password faster than if they tell you you have five minutes to put it in. Now, you know that five minutes and 300 seconds are exactly, to the second, the exact same thing. But the format, the way they tell it to you, That will determine, probably, how quickly you act on the information. The reason for all of this is that when we make a decision, we think that we're making a decision, especially one that has to do with dollars and cents, with plain numbers, based on our minds, our intellects. But that's not really the case. Our intellects 
are biased because of our feelings. We look at the numbers through the lens of our experiences and our feelings and our instincts. And those experiences, feelings, and instincts color that lens. It gives us a bias. And this is true for intelligent people as much as it is for less intelligent people. And so when you go into that restaurant, you know you're about to spend money. It says $20.99, but if there's a dollar sign over there, it reminds you, not intellectually, it shows you, it gives you a sensory perception. It adds a reminder, a visual reminder that you are about to spend money, and that makes you more careful. Even though it's the exact same amount of money, if the number is given in a different format, if it has that dollar sign, it makes you more careful. So restaurants won't put that dollar sign in because they want you to spend more money. When the website gives you that temporary password, if the amount of time we have is measured in seconds, it seems faster to us. It seems like less time to us than if the same amount of time is given to us in minutes. And the reason for that is because in our experience, whenever we hear something measured in seconds, it means a short amount of time. Nobody refers to five minutes generally as 300 seconds. If you ask your assistant, how long will it take to make the copies? He'll say five minutes. He won't say 300 seconds. Because in our experience, we're used to hearing the measurement seconds in the context of very short amounts of time, seconds, literally. We look at 300 seconds through that experience. And even if that 300 seconds is really five minutes, it feels like a shorter amount of time than if they would have said this password expires in five minutes. Now, these are simple, little innocuous decisions that we have to make, and it doesn't really make much of a difference one way or the other. But people who are propagandists know this, and they use it to their benefit. They use it to get you to spend more money on their products, and you think you're making a rational decision, and, but, but you're really not. And with regard to our forensic psychologist, the psychiatrist, our trained professional who wants to decide whether to release Mr. Jones, listen to this. Let's assume that there is a, a 10% chance that Mr. Jones is going to commit violence within the next few months after he's released, meaning that patients with his ailment, with his condition, have a 10% chance of committing that violence. There are two ways to describe 10%. You can say there's a 10% chance, like I just did, or you could say there's a 1 out of 10 chance. They did a study which showed that there's a big difference between whether the 10% chance is presented as 10% or it's presented as 1 out of 10. Approximately double the amount of psychologists, of professionals, psychiatrists, would release Mr. Jones if they were presented the number as a percentage rather than as a fraction, meaning those professionals, those forensic psychologists and psychiatrists who are presented with the data that about 10% of patients like Mr. Jones are likely to commit violence shortly after they're released, were twice as likely 
to release Mr. Jones. About 40% of them decided to release him. Then those that were told the exact same number in a different format, those that were told that patients like Mr. Jones, one out of 10 of them commit violence shortly after they're released, approximately 20% of those professionals decided to let Mr. Jones out. That's approximately double. It's the exact same number. Daniel Kahneman, a Nobel Prize winner in economics, describes this wild discrepancy amongst professionals being the result of one set of professionals visualizing the person committing violence and the other ones just knowing it intellectually. When you tell people that one out of 10 or 10 out of 100 commit violence, they're thinking about these 10 people committing violence. So they get a picture in their mind of the violence being committed as opposed to telling them 10% chance they're not picturing it. It's just more abstract. Now, this is an important and to many people surprising piece of information about human nature. And it's very useful for everybody to know whether you're going to a restaurant or you're a forensic psychologist wanting to let Mr. Jones out. But I have a question. Let's take those forensic psychologists. Let's say somebody knows this information that given the data as 10 out of 100 people will commit violence, they're more likely to let Mr. Jones out. And given a 10% figure, they're less likely to let him out. What now becomes the right decision? Which of those figures should they use to make the judgment? There's the... Where does this leave the professional that wants to make the right decision regarding whether to let Mr. Jones out into the public? I think there is a right answer. Although I appreciate and understand Kahneman's interpretation of this and the power of pictures as opposed to just intellectual knowledge is beyond question. And in fact, we learn it in the Bible When God told Moses on Mount Sinai that his people were celebrating the golden calf, he went down from the mountain, saw them celebrating the calf, decided that they are unworthy of the commandments, threw them to the ground and smashed them. Now the question is, if the reason Moses smashed the tablets was because he decided that the people were unworthy of them because of their celebrating the calf, why did he have to wait until he went down from the mountain to smash them. When God told him that the people were celebrating the calf, why didn't he break them then? Certainly he believed what God said, didn't he? So one of the very good answers to this question is that there's no question Moses believed God when God told him that they were celebrating the calf. And to whatever extent prophecy penetrates inside a person, it penetrated into the consciousness of Moses. There was no doubt in his mind about it. But when he actually went down from the mountain and saw that picture of them celebrating it, when he saw that picture, that made such an impact on him. The visual sensory input of seeing that picture, that had such an impact on him, that caused him to feel what he already knew, what he already believed, what he already understood from God in an entirely different way, such that he then, and only then, smashed the tablets. It was that picture 
It wasn't that Moses saw proof to what God said. He didn't need proof to what God said. God's word is proof enough, proof positive, a thousand percent proof. It wasn't the intellectual knowledge. It wasn't the level of his knowledge. It wasn't the level of his confidence or surety in the fact. It was the picture of seeing it that caused him to break those tablets. So I understand the power of a picture. But I think in this particular case, there's something much more to it here. Those two numbers, 10% and 1 out of 10, numerically, they mean the same thing. They represent the exact same number. But conceptually, they are two completely different statements. When I say that out of 100 people, 10 commit violence, the subject of that sentence is a group of 100 people. And of those hundred people, I'm saying among those hundred, there are 10 of them that will probably commit violence. A, a group of 10 people, there is one of them that will probably commit violence. I just don't know which one out of the 10, and I don't know which 10 out of the hundred. But my discussion is about a group of 10 or 100 people, not one person. As opposed to when I say there's a 10% chance that Mr. Jones is going to commit violence, when I talk like that, in our experience, we use that format of this number when we're talking about one individual person. What are, my ch what are my chances of winning the lottery? What are my chances of winning the election? Well, Joe Biden has a 55% chance of winning the election, give or take margin of error. What are my chances of surviving this crash? What are somebody's chances of growing up and becoming president of the United States? Well, you have a 50% chance of this. You have a 20% chance of this. You have an 80% chance of this. The odds are 80%. The way we speak, when we use the number a 20% chance, 30% chance, 10% chance, it usually our experience, we are referring to a single person. Just like 300 seconds is five minutes, but in our experience, we use the measurement seconds differently than we use the measurement minutes. And therefore, when the psychologist hears that there's a 10% chance of Mr. Jones committing violence, he's focusing on that one Mr. Jones. And he's thinking to himself, well, the odds are 90%, nobody's going to get hurt if I let this man out. And based on that calculus, he lets him out. But let me ask you this. What if there were 10 Mr. Joneses together? 10 of these people at the same time, who the psychologist had to assess whether or not to let them out in the public. The exact same people, 10 Mr. Joneses. And you knew that the odds are one of these 10 people are going to do violence shortly after they get out. You just don't know which one. And you know that if you let these 10 people out, somebody out there is going to get hurt because of you. I would bet that even... If you would let out one Mr. Jones, 10 Mr. Joneses together, you probably won't let out. Because if you let out one, you think in your mind, probably nobody's going to get hurt. But if you let out 10 at a time, you know that probably somebody will get hurt. So you see, when the data is given as one out of 10 people like Mr. Jones will be violent when they get out, the psychologist is thinking about 10 of these Mr. Joneses. This Mr. Jones is not the only person with this ailment. So you're thinking about 10 of these Mr. Joneses. 
you're thinking about this particular one and nine others. Maybe nine that you already let out, or maybe nine that are online to be assessed later, or maybe nine that other psychologists have to assess. You're thinking that if we let people like Mr. Jones out, people are going to get hurt. You're thinking of a group. When you say 10 out of 100 of people like this do damage, you're thinking of the group of 100. You say one out of 10 of these people. You're thinking of a group of 10. You're not focusing on one. You're focusing on 10. That's what it means when you say one out of 10. And so those people that hear the data as one out of 10 or 10 out of 100 people like this are probably going to commit violence. You have that group of 10 in your mind and you say, no, I'm not letting this guy out. But if you say that Mr. Jones has just a 10% chance, you're not thinking of any group. You're thinking about, about this individual, Mr. Jones. So what's the right decision here? Well, if Mr. Jones was the only person in the world with this ailment, and there was only a 10% chance that he would do violence, so then, okay, I could understand those professionals that said, well, the odds are nobody's going to get hurt. Let's let him out. But if Mr. Jones is not the only person in the world with this ailment, and if you decide to let him out, you would also decide to let out nine others like him, or other professionals would let out nine others like him. Now you have a moral dilemma and probably a contradiction. I would ask these psychologists, the ones that would let out Mr. Jones, what would you do if you had 10 Mr. Joneses at the same time? Would you still let them out? If he would say, yes, you know what, I would let them all out. Because each one only has a 10% chance. And even though somebody, one of these 10 people are going to do violence, I don't know who it is. And each one has a right to say, you can't prove it's me. Well, if that's the way you look at it, we can discuss that. I don't think many people would. I think most people, if you first ask them about 10 Mr. Joneses at one time, and you told them one of these guys is for sure going to do violence, one of these guys is going to kill somebody, we just don't know which one. Should we let out these 10 people? They'll probably say, no, we're not letting these guys out. If that's true, it's a logical contradiction, and it would be immoral, therefore, to let one Mr. Jones out, knowing that there are more Mr. Joneses in these psychiatric hospitals who will have the same assessment as Mr. Jones. And because of your decision, somebody's going to get hurt. You cannot say that I would let out one at a time, but I won't let out 10 at a time. There's no logic to that. If you look at them individually, obviously each one only has a 10% chance. So the first, let's say you have 10 of these people that you are thinking of letting out. So you assess them one at a time. The first one, you say, well, this guy's probably not going to be the killer. The killer's probably still locked up. There are nine locked up and one guy's out. The odds are he's not. One at a time, you make this assessment. And by the time the 10th guy is there, you say to yourself, well, the odds are the killer is already on the street because nine out of 10 of these Mr. Joneses are already on the street. So the odds are he's on the street. So I may as well let him out. The odds are this guy isn't the killer. 
If that's the way you're going to look at it, then you would perforce have to let out 10 at a time. There is no moral logic for you to let out a killer either slowly or quickly. Whether it's because you're assessing 10 Mr. Joneses at once, one Mr. Jones at a time. Or even if you're not assessing 10 Mr. Joneses, you're assessing one and other professionals are assessing others. Now Kahneman explains that this principle is used by unscrupulous people or people with an axe to grind for their own agendas. And he gives an example. He says, if you're a lawyer and you want to cast doubt on DNA evidence, well, there's two ways to describe a margin of error in DNA evidence. Let's just say it's one out of a thousand. I'm making up that number. You could say one out of every thousand positive DNA samples are wrong. Or you can say the odds of this sample being wrong are 0.1%. The second way sounds much less likely to have a false positive than the first way. And lawyers do this. And statisticians do this. And people who aren't aware of this make decisions on instinct and very often it's bad decisions experience of witnessing this recently about a half a year ago somebody told me it was one of these guys who who were anti-mask and anti-social distancing and covid and and he tells me that well look why should i have to wear a mask why should i have to do social distancing it's all political after all even if i do infect somebody there's a 99 percent survival rate so 99% survival rate, I have to forego my freedoms of, of not wearing a mask. 99% survival rate, clearly it's all political. This is what he told me. So now there are so many things wrong, logically, ethically, with, with this statement that this guy made. But I just explained to him the arithmetic. Here too, we apply the rule of Mr. Jones. If there were only one person that would be infected because of you, we could discuss whether a 99% survival rate justifies you risking him being infected. But that's not the case. Because this virus is so contagious, the odds are that you're not going to infect one person. You're going to infect many. And even if you infect one, that person will infect others. And eventually, a hundred people will be infected because of you directly or indirectly. If you walk around the street and indoors and certainly at social events without a mask or social distancing. And that means the odds are you're going to be responsible for somebody's death. The odds are a 99% survival rate means that if a hundred people are infected because of you, one is probably going to die. A 99% survival rate means, I explained to him, do you know what this means? That means if let's say there are 100 people on a city block, living on a city block, and they're all infected, the odds are one's going to die. And if you have two blocks, that means two people are going to die. Three blocks where they're infected, three people are going to die. So if everybody walks around just infecting people, that means one out of every 100 people are going to die. See, there you have it again. This person was told 99% survival rate. That sounds great. But if I tell you out of 100 people who are infected, out of every 100 people, one person's going to die probably, that gets you more scared. 
when you're dealing with one individual, you use the percentage format. When you're dealing with a group of people, you use the fraction format with the numerator and denominator. If you want to know your odds of winning the lottery, it's 0.000 whatever 1%. If you want to know how many people win the lottery, it's one out of however many people buy the lottery ticket, how many people play the lottery. To take this anti-maskers argument ad absurdum, imagine a guy, imagine a guy goes to an overpass and throws a cinder block off of it, killing a motorist on the highway. He comes to court and he says, look, I have a defense. I had no idea somebody would be killed. Look, he brings a statistician. The odds of anybody driving on the highway that day of getting killed because of my cinder block was one in 10,000. What are the odds of any individual getting killed is one out of 10,000. So one out of 10,000 odds, you're going to convict me of manslaughter? But of course, that's stupid. One out of 10,000 means that out of every 10,000 people that pass under that overpass, one is probably going to get killed. We just don't know which one. But one will get killed. And it doesn't matter who you kill. The fact that one of those people are probably going to get killed is why we're convicting you. When we say one out of 10 Mr. Joneses are going to commit violence, that means we know out of every 10 people like him, somebody's going to commit violence. We just don't know which one. If the question, on the other hand, is, will will this particular one of the 10 Mr. Joneses be the one to commit the violence, the odds are he's not. So when you're dealing with a group, use the fractional format. When you're dealing with an individual case, use the percentage format. So in real life, in order to protect yourself from propaganda, whenever you hear numbers like percentages or fractions, think of the same number in different formats. If somebody tells you that there's a 90% survival rate on this roller coaster, think of what that means. That means that if every... 10 people that ride on this roller coaster, one person's going to be killed. Now do you want to take that chance? If somebody tells you there's a 90% survival rate, think, well, that means there's a 10% death rate. Do I want to take that chance? <laughs> there was an old statistician, his name was Carol Wright. He used to say, figures can't lie, but liars can figure. People can give you the right data, But because we look at data not based on just the number itself, but through the lens of our experiences and our biases, it's very likely that we're going to use that data and make the wrong decision, the decision that the person that gave us the data wants us to make. So just like when we were kids, they taught us, check your math. If there's an arithmetic problem, 9 minus 3 equals six. If you want to know if that's right, look at it a different way. Bottom up, six plus three equals nine. If that checks, you got the right answer. If it doesn't check, you don't. So if somebody wants you to make a decision based on a statistic, think there are other ways to 
Look at this statistic. Think of all the different ways. Then you can make an informed decision. And when we say informed, we're not talking about informing your intellect, but informing your senses and informing your feelings, because they're also partners in this decision that you're going to be making. Another takeaway is that we can use this for the good. If you're in a restaurant and you made the right decision because you know there's a difference between whether the price has a dollar sign affixed to it or not, and the waiter's late, your entree is late in coming, your kids are getting antsy, where's our food, where's our food? You go into the kitchen and they say, five minutes it'll be there. Tell your kids, the food will be here in 300 seconds. It'll make them much more comfortable than if you tell them it'll be here in five minutes. Thank you for listening to Committing High Reason, the podcast that brings you the thoughts that count. For more material from Rabbi Shapiro and for this episode's show notes and links, head on over to www.committinghighreason.com. 